It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of violence and murder. On November 29th, 2004... An armored truck guard named Robert Keith Palomares was loading up an AMC theater's deposits in Phoenix. It was a routine run, until it wasn't. A gunman ambushed and murdered the 24-year-old, running off with around $56,000. Fingerprints from the scene matched a man named Jason Derrick Brown. Those who knew Brown were shocked. They'd believed him to be a hard-partying surfer dude and a successful and charming businessman, a true embodiment of the American dream. But as it turned out, Brown was a con artist, a criminal so intent on living the high life that he'd kill to keep up appearances. 
Brown became a fugitive from justice and remains one today. His car was discovered at the Portland International Airport. It's possible that he got out of the country and went abroad, although it's also possible that he just went underground here in the United States. Until recently, he was on the Federal Bureau of Investigation's 10 Most Wanted list. The FBI believes that Brown is still out there, still hiding. We'll include a link to his FBI poster in our show notes. Take a look. Study his face. We just passed the 18th anniversary of the day Brown killed Palomares in cold blood. To mark that, we're running an interview we did recently about this case. We talked with Matthew Gentile. He's the writer and director of a 2022 film called American Murderer. It's a fictionalized film that's rooted in the true story of Brown and his crimes. You can watch it pretty much wherever you stream movies online, including Amazon, iTunes, and Google Play Movies. Back in October, we talked with Matthew about how he became obsessed with Brown's case and how he eventually translated that into a script and a film project. We discussed the intricacies of the case, about this con man turned killer, and we delved into the nuances of some recent discourse in the true crime space around movies based on real crimes. If you've ever wondered how a true crime-based film gets made, or even envisioned yourself working on such a project, this is a must-listen. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet, and this is a conversation with American murderer director Matthew Gentile. off with maybe tell us a bit about your background and sort of how you came to work on the American Murderer project. So uh, the story goes before I was uh, before I wanted to be a filmmaker, I wanted to be an FBI agent. So I was uh, 14 years old when this crime that American Murderer is based on and character was uh, was committed by Jason Derrick Brown. Um, so, you know, most of your listeners already probably know the crime 
was committed November 29, 2004. Um, Jason Derrick Brown was a charismatic con man who robbed an armored truck, killed a guard, took off with a bag of $60,000. has never been seen or heard from since. So 14-year-old me was obsessed with the FBI's top 10 list. Um, I used to go on the FBI.gov. I would look at their, um, their fugitives posters, and I would try to see if I could help them catch one. You know, that was my juvenile fantasy. So I became really intrigued by Jason because I saw his face on this list. You know, you had a, a sea of menacing faces from Osama bin Laden to Whitey Bulger, you know, really sophisticated high-end criminal masterminds. And then you have this surfer dude from Southern California and something just doesn't really fit the bill. So his face stood out to me, cut to 14 years later, I was graduating from film school at the American Film Institute, AFI. Um, you know, I was struggling to figure out what my first feature was. You know, I had a couple short films I had made that had done pretty well for me and opened a lot of doors in the industry, but I couldn't really figure out what that first feature was, how to make that leap. And as I was figuring out, I was kind of hopping around from different story to different story. And then all of a sudden, Jason's face popped up on my television. Um, I was storyboarding one day for a shoot and I, I just, his face showed up and I, and I said to myself, is this guy really still missing? So I turned the volume up and I watched this doc, you know, cause Jason's story has been covered quite widely. It's been on American greed, Dateline, you know, uh, lots of newspaper articles. There was a lot of information about him out there and images that Jason had made of himself. Like he had photographed himself a lot with his shirt off in front of his Cadillac or, you know, made like, videos of himself throwing boat parties, which we see in the film, you know, we were kind of recreate. Um, so there was a lot out there about him. And I just kind of asked myself, I was like, well, A, how did this guy outlast all these people? But also, like, how did he kind of get away with what he did? And what I realized as I started to research it was this was a, a con man who had a really good way of, you know, like a lot of good con artists, had a way of like preying on people's confidence, right? And using them and, and, and making them fall for, fall in love with them or fall for their lies. But there was, some, there was a really interesting paradox because he clearly meant a lot to different people. He was loved by a lot of people. He was he loved some people. So I just found this web that he left behind in this aftermath really, really fascinating. And so I, um, you know, I began to ask myself, well, what if this was a movie for the story? And, uh, you know, it seemed a little ambitious for a first-time director. So I thought maybe I would just write the script and see if I could sell it or something like that. But as I started writing it and researching it, I just became so fascinated and obsessed that I just said, yeah, this has to be my first movie. And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate that I did a proof of concept short of the script. I shot one scene from it, the SWAT invasion in the movie. Um, spoiler, there's a SWAT invasion. I shot that five minute scene that got the attention of a couple different producers and companies, Kevin Matisau, Chris Pavel, Gia Walsh. They came on, they opted my script. We developed it for about a year and then we went ahead and, uh, you know, got this thing made. So it was quite a journey. It took a few years and, you know, as movies, independent films, you know, it's a miracle any of them get made today. And we made this movie, you know, just to give you some perspective in the height of the pandemic, we shot November, December, 2020. So it was a really like, crazy time to be making a movie and especially with this incredible cast so yeah it was uh, quite a journey but essentially the short answer is i wrote my way into the director's chair and there's no one way to to become a director but you know writing your own script and not letting anyone else direct it is a is one that's been proven for some to work <laughs> so worked out for you yet you, you staked your claim and you stuck with it um exactly <laughs> I'm curious, tell me more about the research process, you know, going into a crime because you're having to deal with it. You know, it's not a documentary. You're, right. you're uh, you know, it's, it's, you're scripting a real life crime. So 
what sort of research goes into that? And what are you looking at as you're researching in order to say, how can I depict this whole situation? For sure. And, you know, it, every project has different needs. You know, my next four scripts I'm doing are all true crime. So uh, I love the genre. I'm here to stay. But, you know, for American Murderer, because this was really my first t- time doing a true story and a true crime film, I actually spent about six months like first before even writing a page, just researching where I interview, I, I did conduct interviews. I'm not going to name who, cause I don't want to out them, but we'll just say people who knew these people who know some of the people in the film, some characters are composites. So they're not fully like a real person, but um, you know, I, I, I interviewed people who knew them. I interviewed, I didn't interview the cops or the FBI who worked the case because it's still an open investigation. So I didn't have that ability, but I did talk to police officers and like, brought them information about the case it's like can you tell me what what's up here i did get my hands on every file um thing image of him i could um i was able to get access to the some of like you know what we talked about like video footage of him partying and drinking and hanging out on his boat with his friends which was really insightful and hilarious uh, and wild and um you know I, I was able to really research the crime in depth like i got crime scene files and and and, and all that kind of stuff that was open to the public so the, the answer is i i did everything i could publicly right to get and then at a certain point you know research is a really great way for a, a screenwriter and i'm sure you might feel similarly as a true crime content creator it, it's great but there's also a great way to procrastinate from actually doing the work <laughs> you know you can you can amass a lot of knowledge and you know the world so well, but then you got to start writing. And so for me, you know, I was never really personally, I didn't feel that beholden to tell it accurately. I was more pursuing an emotional truth and honesty, if that makes any sense. So I was really trying to, you know, get to the truth of what these characters feel like. Like, what did it feel like to be Jason's sister in that moment when, you know, she finds out he did this, right? So, so that's kind of more what I was pursuing rather than like, well, actually, you know, some there was a neighbor across the street who saw everything or called them, you know. So I was really trying to pursue the emotional truth and honesty. I wasn't necessarily pursuing accuracy for this film, but I did do a ton of research, which really helped inform creative decisions. Things down to like, say, the wardrobe Jason wears in the film, like that striped green shirt. You know, that's ridiculous. Is a shirt we saw pictures of him wearing. You know, in in a club, but it, photos of him he took of himself in a club, or you know. Um, like the bow party, the types of, you know, people he had on that party, we were able to like, you know, pull from that. So we have a lot, or, you know, the bike he uses in the murder, like is was painted the same exact color. So things like that, where we really like, you know, cause what I want to do as a filmmaker, ultimately, and I think you also probably feel this way as to running a podcast is you want to immerse your, your viewer or your listener. You want to immerse them in the world you're creating. And the beauty of film, you know, that we have at our disposal is we have tons of tools, you know, we have visuals, we have sound, we have music, we have all that. And so really getting as much research as I could on it was great. But then ultimately, I felt the freedom to be able to go off and, and try things and make up stuff to, to make it more dramatic and compelling. Because real life, as we know, often does not play out like a movie, right? There's just too many slow parts or whatever. So, you know, I had, there was a lot of creative liberties I had to take. And that's also why I should clear for the record here that I, I never spoke to the family, um, of Jason Derrick Brown in the making of the film um, because I didn't want my take on Jason to be uh, filtered through that lens. So I wanted to remain kind of objective in the process because again, this is a work of true crime fiction, right? It's, it's, it's true crime. There's a lot of true stuff that there's people who have 
who know a lot about the case and have told me, they said they're, they're amazed by how accurate it is. Um, and I've, some things are like, yeah, that was intentional. And some things I'm like, Oh, all right. That was, you know, it's sort of like, cool, but you know, yeah, no, I try to research as much as I can, you know, things like the crime, like the murder sequence itself is, is pretty well researched and close, you know, to how it happened from what I've, from what I gathered, but you know, there's a lot we created. You mentioned the emotional truth of, of the movie. Um, if you could boil it down, you know, what what is sort of the underpinning emotional thread that goes through the film as far as you see it um, for, you know, what it meant to be involved and wrapped up in this whole situation, you know, created by Mr. Brown and, and, and what is the kind of um, truth for you? I know at the ending, it's, you know, this kind of ambiguous uh, right. ending, obviously, because of how real life plays out he becomes a fugitive and he's he's still out there but uh for you sort of what what is that emotional truth if you could speak to that well you know i films are funny because some movies are what they call message movies right where you watch a movie it has a specific message and as you pointed out this film has an ambiguous ending like it doesn't you know this movie does not deliver a cookie cutter like hey you know con artists are bad right we already knew that really so you know the movie to me the reason why i made it is because I think it poses a question, you know, which is, there's a couple. One is why do we fall for con artists, right? I think that's something the film's really exploring is why do we, you know, why do, because people like Jason, you know, Jason's not a standalone. There's a lot of people out there like him, unfortunately, you know, and that, you know, you have, there's, I don't want to compare exactly, but like look at Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos or look at the Firefest guys, you know, scams. Now they're not murderers, but their scams are, a huge part of our culture or Anna Delvey, right? You, you, you have this kind of thing going on in the American zeitgeist. So like, not Connors are all over the world, but in America, it's a very specific thing. So I really wanted to explore that. Why do we, why do we keep falling for comment and how do you know, and, and it's not an indictment or judgment on any of the characters in the movie, but I noticed as I was like looking at this, that a lot of people, when they found out what Jason Derrick Brown did, were completely shocked and awestruck. Like it was like, how did this guy do this? How, how could he have done? No way. That's not the Jason I know. I heard that a lot, right? That's not the Jason I know. And so I don't think really anyone in the film is a dumb person. I think actually every character is pretty smart and independent or, you know, like, I just think that what they ended up unfortunately doing that I think a lot of us do is they kind of, you know, it's like almost like they were blinding themselves to the ugly nature that was kind of right there because we don't want to admit that, Right. And so I think that's what, you know, the film is really unpacking and exploring because, you know, Jason Derrick Brown was, you know, may, perhaps he was just born a bad egg, right? And we we do show scenes where, you know, you, you explain how he might have gotten coached by his father and, right, because his father was also a con man who also disappeared. So there was a lot of teaching. He was taught things that, you know, certainly I would, I would guess you and I <laughs> were not taught, right, as kids. Um, so, you know... I think exploring that and unpacking that and understanding like, all right, here's this guy. Let me show you to him. Let me show him to you. Present you Jason Derrick Brown through all of these multiple perspectives so that whether you love this guy or hate him, right. Or fall anywhere in between. And I've had audience members go all over the spectrum. I've had some people say they were rooting for him until they find out what he did. I've had some people say they were against him from the get go, but they were kind of like wanting to see what would happen, you know? And I think, However you feel, you can still enjoy the film because ultimately, by the end of the movie, you're going to get a 360-degree panoramic view of who this guy was, 
you know, you're going to see him in all his colors, all the, you know, the goods to part, the good elements about him, which is that like, he was good with kids and he was, you know, a nice boyfriend sometimes, and, you know, whatever. And he was a good brother or seemed like it, you know, then you see the bad parts, which are that he's using pretty much everybody and seeing all of them as a personal credit card and calculating and cunning and, you know, dishonest and all that. Right. But you, you get all of that so that by the end of it, you come out and you're like, Hmm, how do we deal with this kind of person in our society? How do we deal with a murderer, a sociopath, right? Because, you know, a sociopath doesn't see themselves necessarily as a sociopath. You know, Jason Derek Brown doesn't wake up in the morning probably and go, oh, I'm a real sociopath. I'm going to do something evil today. No, in his brain, he's just like, if I do this, I'll get that. If I use that woman, I'll get, I'll get to stay in her house for two weeks. If I, you know, commit this crime, I'll be able to get my boat back. And it's that mindset that's really unsettling but I think relevant. So, you know, I really wanted to examine this guy and, uh, you know, bring him into the light and uh, help us, you know, confront the audience and ask questions that might make them a little uncomfortable, but I think also will be intriguing, compelling and entertainment. I'm curious, you know, in terms of uh, Brown in particular, you mentioned a couple of other sort of scams and and con artists that have, have occurred and having done this portrait essentially of Brown, um, and the person that, you know, he he was and how he was acting. Do you have any thoughts on what prompted him to take that step further in terms of not just running cons, but actually crossing the line into right. you know, taking another person's life and becoming a murderer? Yeah, you know, there's um, it's actually really interesting because the movie mostly takes place in the year of the, the crime and the murder. Right. So, you know, you get flashbacks of different parts, but it's most the majority of it is it's in that year. And that year actually is the most mysterious one of Jason's life, like between Jason moving into this neighborhood where in the film, the character is portrayed by Adina Menzel and her son, like, you know, before he kind of moves into this neighborhood, because Jason's scam, just for the listeners out there, um, you know, his normal scam was he would kind of move into a neighborhood. He'd come with all these flashy, fancy toys, you know, Cadillacs, BMWs, boats. He'd move into a house, lease it, you know, and he kind of looked like on the surface, a successful, young, bro-y business guy, um, you know, who was like just well off and, and cool and fun and would take the, you know, take the guys to the bar and hit on the ground. You know, he just had this kind of like, yeah, big man on campus vibe to him. And he would do this for like three to six months before a creditor would be onto him. And then he'd go and move to the next thing and move to the next scam. Um, you know, I think it came from a few things. One was, you know, as, and the movie does kind of show this, you know, he couldn't really keep that scam going anymore. Like his, his scams, his normal ways of getting money were not working for him anymore. He couldn't do, he couldn't quite pull it off. And so, you know, in a way it's a bit of a twisted addiction movie. And that Jason was addicted to a certain lifestyle. He wanted to have wealth. He wanted to have extravagance. He wanted to have the toys. He wanted to have be the big shot, but he didn't want to actually work for it. Right. And so I think in Jason Derrick Brown's brain, which was the dangerous place, he was desperate. You know, I think he came at it from a place of desperation. And that's twisted because really like, it wasn't that desperate. Right. Like, you know, he could have given the toys back, sold it, maybe did two years in prison for whatever petty crimes he committed and been done, right? That would have been the healthy choice if such a thing existed. But instead, he decided to go down the spiral. And, you know, for the year leading up to the murder, 
that's the most mysterious year in Jason's life. People don't really know where he went or what he was doing. You know, in my film, I have dramatized that with thugs who were on his trail and, and he did owe money to thugs. So that wasn't uh, in real life. That was actually a true thing. So I used that, but you know, in terms of the timing, we're not sure when that happened, but you know, he was, he was in the underworld and he was, you know, getting, I think he was spending a lot of time alone, you know, letting his mind spiral with bad ideas. And ultimately it just escalated and escalated further and further, um, you know, to the point where he did something truly unthinkable. Um, but, you know, yeah, it is a, quite a jump to go from petty cons to first degree murder and armed robbery. Um, and, you know, this is one of the reasons that it's, you know, I, I'll never get to sit down with Jason Derek Brown and ask him why he did what he did. But I saw it as, well, from my interpretation as a filmmaker, my interpretation was he was just getting inside. His head was just growing, going out of control with desperation of, I have to get back to this high life. I have to get back to being that big man on campus. And so he was chasing that high he had, you know, much like an addiction. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one -on -one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Yeah, it's, it certainly sounds like it. And, and I, you know, I mean, in terms of the, the, the murder, 2004, uh, Robert Keith Palomar as being the, uh, you know, 24 year old armored car guard that he, he murdered. Um, were you, I mean, I know you can't, if you can't get into your sources, no worries. Were you able to connect with his family or, um, you know, friends or anyone like that who was able to give you some info on, on the man that he ended up, um, murdering? Well, I didn't, um, I didn't connect with the family of either Palomar's or, or Jason Dark Brown for the same reason that I didn't want my take influenced. You know, there were um, articles, interviews uh, on those documentaries that did interview the victim's family and Jason's uh, Jason's family, not so much in the documentaries, but in interviews and articles. Yeah. So I, I had what I needed, I felt. And I and I had learned about Palomar's that, you know, he was reportedly just a nice guy and a young man. Um you know, and portraying that incident, you know, I made, we made sure to, you know, show, and I, it's the hard part of this movie, right? And sometimes the hard part to talk about because, you know, and, and the constant conflict that happens with true crime storytelling, you know, and, you know, you never make a movie like this to exacerbate anyone's pain. Like, that's never something you would intend to do, um, you know, but I think, you know, we unfortunately have to show that scene, right? Because you have to show all the things Jason Derrick Brown did and the, to give that 360 degree view and portrait of who he was. Um, so, you know, we really, um, you know, it was, but yes, there was information on, on Robert Key Palmars that I had had that he was, a, you know, a nice upstanding guy who, you know, suffered a really unfortunate tragedy at the hands of this, you know, of Jason Derrick Brown. Absolutely. Uh, you know what if you could explain to the listeners i guess you know why is it important for a filmmaker to possibly maintain that separation of church and state when it comes to not being too influenced about the characters that you're kind of um whose story you're sort of fictionalizing but you know staying true to at the same time and and sort of how does that factor into a filmmaker's thinking about like okay how can i do this story justice right well let's put it this way um in the case of, say, the Palomares family, like, you know, the character of Robert Palomares is not portrayed much in the film, right? It's a very small part of the movie, which is intentional. So, you know, in terms of the information needed, that was all we had what we needed for, them, for that, um, to show the, to make the point we were trying to make that what Jason did was a horrible thing to an innocent person. In terms of someone like Jason Derrick Brown, you know, when you're making a movie about him, but I think it would be the case if you were doing any biopic, whether it's about Steve Jobs or, you know, Jake LaMotta, the subject of Raging Bull. You know, um, Jake LaMotta famously was suing Scorsese and De Niro when the movie came out because he didn't like the way he was portrayed. You know, real life characters and movie characters might look similar, but they're often very different. You know, they're not really, like, I think it's kind of funny when, like, movies end and you show a picture they always show it. We didn't do this in the movie, but they show a picture of the real person and people go like, Oh my God, they looked exactly like them. And I personally never really care when that happens. Like, I'm kind of like, okay, you know, like I was the actor, was the actor good, you know? But I think that it's important. The other way I would phrase it is let's say somebody was making a movie about your life. Right. Um, you know, when someone wants to make a biopic about you from age five to 25. Right. And, um, you know, Tell me this, if they interviewed your mom, how, how would that screenwriter be able to do their job? Because your mom is going to say, well, she's the best person in the world. I love her so much. And she's this and that. And, you know, she was a sweet kid. And like, you know, because that's that's what parents and family do. They they 
you know, they, they're going to want their family to be portrayed a certain way. And look, I wasn't even trying to make the movie to, you know, I don't, I didn't approach the character of Jason Derrick Brown with judgment. I don't feel, you know, and I don't think Tom who portrayed him, I think perfectly. I don't think Tom did either. Cause if Tom did, and if I did, I think it wouldn't really worked. You know, we were really just trying to show you someone for who they are. Right. And, and an unflinching way. And I think that, you know, look, some films do talk to the people they portray. So it's, there's no one blanket rule. Anybody can do it anyway. I just, for, for my own film, you know, I wanted to maintain that objectivity. Um, but I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, you know? That makes um, sense. Yeah. It, it's a tricky, it is tricky when you're dealing with real life people. You know, there's a famous story of one of my favorite movies, Dark Day Afternoon, the real Al, Al Pacino's real character apparently like got beat up in prison for some stuff that was in the movie and complained about it. And the screenwriter wrote a letter <laughs> in a newspaper saying, okay, I'm sorry. He didn't actually do these things. I made it up. This is what filmmakers do. Just leave him alone. And eventually then they stopped. So, you know, sometimes there are things like that. That's funny, but yeah, no, I mean, I think that it's, it is a tricky thing, but that said, you know, I think that, filmmakers, true crime content creators. I know a lot of true crime content creators often get in trouble with families, victims or things like that. And I think that it's, it's a challenging line to walk, but I think that these stories should be told because they can, they can help us examine our culture and our world and why I think these kinds of things happen. You know, I actually happen to think that despite the rap true crime gets as being kind of grim and this and that, there's a lot of studies on how people who are really into true crime is actually, it's an indication of empathy because people want to know why this happened and you know how that happened. And, and I think that's a good thing. So, you know, but it's, it is a tricky juggling act and we're all, you know, it's something I think as the genre becomes more and more popular, because it's become insanely popular now, good thing for us, <laughs> you know, it's, it is a tricky thing. We're going to be you know figuring out in years to come. Absolutely. I wanted to ask, and this has kind of become part of the online discourse recently, but it's also one of those things where sometimes there's a difference between the online discourse and the audience, uh, you know, the, right. the overall audience, you know, out there uh, regarding true crime. And I'm speaking specifically about one film, uh, the recent uh, Dahmer project that yeah. ran, you know, sort of, you saw on the one hand, very popular, uh, you know, project people were definitely, uh, I, I think it did numbers at the same time it was getting critiqued um in some circles for you know uh, do we need another Dahmer film or or you know uh, people who were family members of the victims being upset with the way things were portrayed and I guess like as as you know as a filmmaker sort of in the same space like let's let's kind of adapt and fictionalize a true story while remaining true to it but you know treating it you know like a like a work of true crime fiction I think as you mentioned how how do you look at that discourse and how do you sort of um, interpret that and and say like, is, is the audience shifting on what they want from true crime or is this a matter of like, it's just one thread and perhaps it's maybe a bit smaller than it looks to people who are very online on Twitter, I guess. You ask very smart, thoughtful questions, I just want to say. So <laughs> thank you for, for doing my that. Job. <laughs> it, it helps. Um, it's a great question. You know, I haven't seen Dahmer, so I can't speak too much to it. The funny thing is I don't, for someone who does true crime, I don't watch a ton of true crime because I watch some, but I'm not like seeking it all the time because, you know, I like to take I'm the same way. Yeah, I'm, exactly. We take, 
yeah. we take breaks from our work. Um, you know, but as far as like, well, from what I could see from the outside, I could see both sides. You know, I can understand why a victim's family would be upset. I can understand why they might be upset by my film, you know, the victim's family in this, in this movie. And if they are, I'm sure they are, you know. Um, I think that, you know, it, it is a challenging thing. That said, you know, my feeling on it is I, you know, do we need another Dahmer story? I don't know. I mean, I did see part of actually the first episode and I did think it was quite powerful because uh, I was so unsettled by it. I had to turn it off. I just couldn't, like, I was just like, Oof. you know, it really, really was, was, and I, I thought it looked quite good to me. And Evan Peters, I think was, seems like he really got, is giving a great performance in that show. At, that, that's me saying it after watching like 25 minutes of it. Um, but he looked amazing in it and like, looks like he really nailed, like got him. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think that it's obvious. I mean, look, I think the fact that so many people tuned in to watch it does say something that people want to know about this, that people are interested, that people, you know, and I, and I think I like Ryan Murphy's shows. I, I really like the Versace show that he did. I thought that was great. And I liked the OJ show that they did. I thought that was great. And I liked the impeachment one. Um, the, the one with Monica Lewinsky and, uh, Sarah Paulson, I thought that was also excellent because I think they're examining these things that are that happened and have truth and have, you know, um, yes, they're dramatizations, but I think dramatizations of true events, what they can ultimately do, and this goes all the way back to sound pretentious, but to Shakespeare, right, is you kind of they kind of help you make or Aristotle, right? I mean, we're making order of this weird, fucked up world we live in, right? And that's what I think all drama can do not just true crime but true crime especially i think and so you know i understand why and again i can't speak to, i don't know exactly what the families are upset about other than the trauma being re-brought up which i totally get but at the same time you know is that a reason for the show or you know movies or tv shows or books or podcasts about true crime to therefore not exist you know i don't necessarily think so because i do think there can be something gained from helping an audience understand who this kind of person was. My guess is Tom really explores who he was and what made him tick and, you know, why he became this way and how do we deal with these kinds of monsters? Cause Dahmer's like, like a monster on a whole other level, but you know, it was uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, that's a name everybody knows. So, you know, I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting question. And I don't, without having seen all of it, I can't fully answer. But I think that, yeah, I think I, there's totally valid logic for both schools of thought or all schools of thought in this. Yeah. I, 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 as a journalist, I tend to say that sunshine and telling stories is, is tends to be the, the better move. Or, or, but certainly, obviously, in some cases, I can understand how something could veer into being more exploitative. I didn't see Dahmer, uh, but I certainly can understand why people would want to adapt that story given you know the horrific nature of what he did and so yeah. I, I, think I'm, I think I'm with you I think I can see it both ways and I think it's probably just a nuanced thing where filmmakers and true crime creators and true crime consumers have to sort of look at it for themselves and say you know just kind of judge a film or a project on its own merits as opposed to saying well we can never do anything on x anymore um because yeah they, you know so device yeah. Yeah. Divisive entertainment's interesting when like that, you know, and I, I think my movie might be in a similar category where, you know, I think it's like, at least I've seen like, you know, and I think the debates that come were like, 
you know, you look at movies like Joker, like when Joker came out, like people were pissed about that movie. They really thought it was dangerous and this and that and ended up just, you know, becoming a very popular movie, right? Or, you know, movies, a lot of films that were like ahead of their time, like you look at A Clockwork Orange or Bonnie and Clyde even, like Bonnie and Clyde pissed people off. <laughs> people were really like, they were like, you can't do that. You can't show these people having a fun time and, you know, doing what they do. And now they've done it a hundred times since. So I don't know, you know, I'm not really, uh, I'm pretty against censorship as a process. <laughs> like that's kind of the big thing I hate the most. So, you know, that said this, I don't think this is censorship. You know, I think that, yeah, I think we, we want this kind of stuff. I think there's no harm in, in, in art existing because people can make their own interpretations about it, you know? Yes. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, in terms of, it's actually funny. Like I, I've read like, uh, collections of like early true crime and and there's that with true crime in particular like it starts out in the united states and like puritan tracks being like look at this bad person you know this is why they're going to hell because they're you know they did this and it's it is that moralizing sort of instruction but then it converges into more narrative i just think it's a pendulum that's constantly swinging and yeah it'll be a conversation that we're having a hundred years from now because it will still occur and they'll still be is this too much? Is this too sensationalizing? What's the difference though with, with your film is that it's about a crime that is technically currently, uh, I wouldn't say it's unsolved. It's just unresolved because it is, yeah. this man is still a fugitive. So you are, you have the uh, edu- public educational element of saying, Hey, like this, this guy's out there. Maybe you should read up on the case and, and right. keep an eye out a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, Ryan Philippe on every show has said, uh, let's go catch this guy like we're gonna we can get him you know um because he's still out there allegedly you know and yes it's kind of funny because like you know i didn't make the movie specifically to catch jason um if it leads to that i have no problem with that but it's not that wasn't like my you know i don't think that's a reason to make a film that's a reason to be an fbi agent at 14 but (laughs) not a reason to to make a film um but yeah you know it, it is fascinating that discourse we're having i mean it's it is an interesting time for true crime for sure and what, and what it's power and what it can do. Absolutely. That's so fun. I, I think if Ryan Felipe goes out and catches this guy, that'll have to be a follow-up film. I know. Yeah. We, we had some people in our press junket saying sequel, sequel. And I'm like, what, what's the sequel? He's still missing, you know, but if he gets caught, maybe, um, or if we ever find out what happened to him, but I don't know. I, I, I would probably let someone else do the sequel. I think I, <laughs> my story uh, is told here. Do you, I mean, I'm just like, I, I know the, the goal of the film is not to catch him, but it certainly, you know, I'm sure helps to raise public awareness. Uh, right. I, I do, you, do you have a theory on where he is? Like ha- having been through all this, having told his story, do you have a theory on like, if not where, then like what he's doing or, you know, how he's existing now? Well, you know, at the production office of the movie, we used to, we had a list on the wall because my production had a marker that you could like write on the glass and everyone had their theory. I think mine was Australia for a while. I thought he was there. Um, you know, the last sighting of him was in 2008 in Salt Lake city, allegedly, although it's not a fully confirmed sighting, but it's a probably confirmed sighting. Like he was apparently seen by a former friend. He drove through a stoplight, had like long hair or not through a stoplight, through a red light. And the guy saw him and they recognized each other and he just zoomed through. So it's pretty suspicious. But my guess is he got out of the country. I don't think he stayed around that long. 
my guess is he went to Australia or some, somehow got his way through maybe French speaking to, cause he spoke fluent French um, and apparently Spanish. So, you know, a guy speaking French, Spanish, who's charming and has a knack for the underground world and can figure out how to make the right false IDs or identifications, and, you know, in that dark kind of underbelly. Yeah. There's a lot of theories on where he could be. Some people think he reunited with his father. I don't, think that's true. I think no one knows where the father when I think that was just a total disappear story that we'll never know. And I think he's similar. I think he probably figured out a way to hide under the radar. My guess is not live a flashy, ostentatious life anymore. I think that's what he probably gave up, right? Was going around being like seen everywhere, big man on campus. I think he probably slid under the radar. I almost see it like, uh, you know, better call Saul. Like what is a, you know, Jimmy McGill do when he like lives at the Cinnabon and lives under the radar. I think he's probably living somewhere under the radar. If he's alive at all, there's a possibility he's not, but you know, if more people see the movie, maybe a conversation will get going and we will find out it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly one would hope. Um, and I'm curious in terms of, uh, feedback from any of the law enforcement folks that you mentioned, you know, sort of speaking to, has that been, are they hopeful that it could stir some conversations or anything like that? I don't know. You know, there was a, there was an interesting thing I was listening uh, because I was also on True Crime Garage this past week. So I've been, I've been on Love the Captain. Absolutely. Love the Captain. Yeah, they're great. I, um, yeah, I was on them this week and and they were saying it was really interesting that Jason Derrick Brown was taken because he was just recently taken off the FBI top 10 futures list in September on the 7th, actually, right, you know, four weeks before this movie or five weeks before this movie opened. We, like that was surprising to them because they were like, well, now with a movie coming out and all this like free publicity, right, for their case, wouldn't they still keep him on if this was the time? So it's tough to say because I've never spoken to the FBI about it. Um, they don't they don't talk on ongoing investigations, so I didn't I didn't go that route. But I had a really great law enforcement consultant named Adam Richardson. He actually runs a really really great podcast called the Writer Detectives Bureau where he's actually, he's a consultant for films and TV. He was a former, do you know this? Do you, would you by any chance know the case of uh, Jesse James in Hollywood? It was, oh, it was in the movie uh, Alpha Dog. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, uh, Anton. Um, yeah. 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 So, I, yeah. That's a scary case. Yeah. So Adam Richardson was the detective who worked it. He brought Jesse James Hollywood in. Um, so he was my consultant and he, you know, I, I, I shared multiple drafts of the screenplay with him. He saw the movie. And when we filmed, actually, I would FaceTime him from set and be like, does this look right? Does that look right? So, you know, he worked me really hard to get as many of the police, FBI procedural elements as right as possible. That's so cool. Yeah. That's and he gave me approval. He, he, he pointed out a couple things I did wrong. Like I have one scene where these two cop cars are like behind a car and they come out with their guns. And he was like, it looks cool in the movies and it works. But just so you know... They wouldn't actually stage it like that because if the guy ducks, they'll shoot each other. <laughs> I was like, oh, that makes sense. So that's the one big mistake I made, apparently. But he said it's fine because it looks cool. And that's the thing he always stresses is that sometimes things that, you know, look cool aren't necessarily realistic. So you kind of have to pick your battles. But we tried to be pretty authentic. Like, actually, it was also helpful having Ryan play this character because Ryan, Ryan actually comes from a military uh, background, his family's military background. And um, he's played a cop so many times. So he actually was like, when he was holding the gun in the movie, like this, you know, um, listeners can't see, but I'm, it's like pointing down almost at your chest. I was like, what are you doing? 
like, like you gotta go like that. And he was like, no, 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 no. I don't do that. I do that when, when I'm like, when I'm ready to draw, otherwise I'm keeping like this. And uh, I've had a couple cops uh, who's seen it say to me, oh, that's great. Ryan knew how to hold the gun, like a real cop. Um, so there you go. Uh, the little moments of realism. And yeah, I think there's sometimes an, an obsession with people about everything being, you know, hyper-realistic or, or vetted. Or in, and I think like there needs to be room in fiction to just have stuff that looks kind of cool. Like not, you know, don't, don't worry. worry. Yeah, don't worry uh, about it so much. You can please some of the people some of the time, but never all the people all the time, you know. There you go. Like that. <laughs> we certainly learned that. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious, are there any, um, well, actually, I wanted to ask the title of the film, American Murderer, and we kind of touched upon this earlier in the interview, but I wanted to ask you, you know, you know, what about Brown's crimes and him as a person do you think really speaks to sort of America and, and what makes his story in some ways you know, uniquely American, obviously, is, is denoted by by the title of the film. Right. Well, I want to be clear on the record and say this is not an anti-American movie. <laughs> I'm a very pro-American person. I'm a proud American. Um, you know, the funny thing about the title, um, you're going to laugh, but the way, the reason it's titled this title is the first time I heard about the case, I, I Googled, Jason Derrick Brown. When you Google Jason Derrick Brown, it says American murderer. Just like if you were to Google my name right now, it'll say American film director or your name. It would be like American crime podcast author, right? <laughs> so I found it really interesting, kind of on an intellectual level, that, oh, he does this thing. And now that is that is what we will know him as for the rest of our lives is the American murderer. Um, so it kind of stuck. I mean, that said, you know, I think one thing the movie always was about to me is, you know, we have this American dream, which tells you go, go out, prosper, conquer, manifest your own destiny, right? Get out there and, and make your fortune, right? <laughs> like that's kind of a, a dream that's advertised that I'm not against, you know, I'm a filmmaker, I'm one of many filmmakers in Hollywood trying to get my movie made and get my movie seen today, right? So I, I, you know, I don't have a problem with the American dream, but there is a dark side to the American dream. And I think that's what the story is. You know, at the core, I saw it as a film about family, right? That was the one weird theme of the film. It's about family and family relationships and siblings specifically, right? But it is also examining that dark side of the American dream of how greed can overtake someone, which has happened many, many times. And a lot of the films I, you know, love, like say The Wolf of Wall Street, right? Or Goodfellas, right? Or or, or or Dark Afternoon, right? It's it's like, you know, what people do when they get desperate for money and, and want to, you know, achieve a certain status symbol and, and, and the cost of that kind of mentality, you know? So that's what the film's trying to explore. It's really examining that Dark of the American dream up close, you know, in an unflinching way. Absolutely. Yeah, so I know. I mean, that's my- why I guess it's stuck. Um, you know, that's why I guess it looked like it almost was going to change a couple times because I think there was that documentary on Netflix called American Murder. <laughs> I thought we might lose our title and I'd have to change it and have many very good backups, but fortunately they let us keep it. So, oh, <laughs> there you, you skated in. Uh, it's funny. I used to, I, in my career as a journalist, I've reported on things like multi level marketing schemes, which are often accused of being sort of pyramid schemes in terms right. of, sales. and that also touches upon the American dream where. 
it's not just about people who are willing to do anything to achieve it, but people who want to believe so badly that they can kind of get suckered into things when a business or a person might seem too good to be true or is promising too much. But there's this faith of, you know, it, it looks good. So I would like to believe it that I think also feeds into allowing con men to prey upon people in a way that, you know, is not necessarily uniquely American, but certainly kind of touches upon some of our kind of culture of, of sort of wanting to believe that like, yes, this, this guy is for real or this, this business that says I'm going to make all this money is for real. Right. Right. You know, because that's where the term con man confidence trickster comes from. They prey on your confidence. They get under, you know, and they're convincing, you know, that's the thing. It's yeah. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you, I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road with available H track, all wheel drive and three row seating. My whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Um, if you, if you could somehow run into Brown, if he got arrested next year and you just got the opportunity, would there be any like one question you definitely want to ask him having studied him so extensively? Mm, That's another good question. You know, I haven't been asked that one. I've been asked if Brown called you, would you turn him in? Uh, someone asked me that at the Newport beach film festival. And I said, uh, I said, if if he calls me, I'll let you know what happens. (laughs) I'll let you know what I do, but I have no plan. Um, I probably would though. Or at least I would tell the cops I'd be scared. Um, if I got to meet Brown, you know, I gotta say, I don't want to give you a lame answer, but I don't know that I would. I mean, I spent so much time with this story, this character, this movie. You know, when you make a movie, you really when you write and direct one, you kind of see it through all these different phases. I've seen the film now many, many times with audiences packed, you know, you know, I've seen it with packed theaters and and around the world. I saw it in Italy. I saw it in Boston. I saw it here. I saw it in LA. I saw it down in San Diego last week where we got an award. So I've seen the movie now so many times with people and in making it, you see it so many times in the script, you see, you know, you, you see it so many times in your head. So, you know, at this point, uh, no, I, I would not really ask him any questions because I feel like for me, they've been pretty answered. I'd be curious to see like what happened or where he went in the years he was gone, possibly if he was caught. But um, 
No, I wouldn't ask him too much about it. Like I, I would, you know, I guess I'd be curious to hear his thoughts um, on the movie if he saw it and I'm sure he'd have notes, um, <laughs> you know, but yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. The, the, the movie for me, at least in terms of my journey making, it feels pretty closed. Like, I feel like I, I feel like I came full circle and did what I wanted to do, told the story I wanted to tell, you know, got to do with this amazing cast. You know, I think the actor who, who plays Jason Derrick Brown, Tom Pelfrey from, from Ozark and other shows um, is really just gives a tour to force performance in this. And I think he got to the core of it. And yeah, no, I, I feel pretty, pretty good um, about it all. And if, uh, if you wanted to talk to me, I'd say, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you've had, had enough of Mr. Brown for now, at least. <laughs> I think so. You know, I think so. I, I don't. I don't. I don't see a sequel. But I've had journal. It's it's nice to have people ask you if there's going to be one. That's a compliment. But you know, I think I think it's a pretty close story, personally. Absolutely. Um, why do you think we are so interested in stories about people like Brown? I mean, it's it, all, I mean, so many people are interested in true crime, obviously. But, you know, Brown represents something where it's, you know, somebody who was a con right. man who then, you know, took a life. I mean, just kind of reprehensible acts. But why do we want to know about this guy, I guess? Well, you know, it's I think it's always the big question whenever you set out certainly to make a movie. Is it's like, why are you telling this story? What? Like, you know, why this person? Right? Why this? And I mean, in terms of Brown specifically, you know, I think the paradox is certainly what attracted me personally the paradox of here's this guy who could be seen one way right as you know by so many people as this su successful cool fun loving guy and be capable of something so evil and calculating and sociopathic so you have those two things that i think make for a great character and I also think, again, the theme of family. We often go to movies, theater, plays, drama, right? Because we like conflict, right? Entertainment, right? It often comes from conflict. And, you know, there's a really great conflict in this movie, you know, of the family. Like, what do they do about him? What would you do if that was your brother staying at your house, right? And he had just done this thing that you had no idea about. Or what would you do if that was your son? The son you can't quite straighten out which there is lesser, this is an extreme version of that. There's a little, you know, right. Every family, you know, has its dysfunctions. So, I mean, they, there are some that don't, but I, I think even those probably have something, right. Every family has drama dysfunction. You know, uh, I come from an Italian Jewish family, which means lots of passion and volatility, but we all love each other, but you know, it's a great family, but you know, I think every family has that. So I think we come to these stories because we see parts of ourselves there you know, we under it helps us understand things about our world and our culture. So, you know, I think that these stories, all kinds of stories, but these stories specifically have value. And, you know, the, the shock or the, you know, appeal of like, you know, let's say in our movie, we really, you know, to sell the film, right? We talk about the manhunt, right? It's, you know, Philip A trying to catch Pelfrey, right? It's Jason pitted against lysing in this cat cat and mouse game. And I love that stuff too. I mean, Heat's one of my favorite movies where it's like, you know, Pacino versus De Niro. Like we come to the movies for that kind of thing. But 
you know, we have a term in Hollywood called Trojan horse, right? Where you kind of, that's the Trojan horse underneath that is a message, a question, something more sophisticated. And in this case, it's, you know, a story about family and, and, and the dark side of the American dream, but it's also about, you know, a manhunt and all that. So I think there's a lot we come for. I think we come to the movies or we listen to podcasts or we read books, you know, to, to see ourselves, to make order of the world we live in, to ask questions, um, see the world through a different set of eyes. Like how do you get to see the world through Jason Derrick Brown's eyes? Well, if you rent this movie or go see in a theater, you'll get to. And how often do you get to see Jason Derrick Brown get pitted against FBI agent? Well, if you come see it, you'll get to. And I think you come out feeling, I like when movies, books, anything, art makes me feel a variety of emotions. You know, for me, I think a lot of true crime can be very heavily, and crime in general, can be very heavily into like the overly self-serious, you know, like macabre this. And like part of what I think is fun about our movie that we're talking about today is you're getting, there's some heavy stuff in there for sure. It's, it's a tragedy at the court, but there's also moments that you're going to, I mean, I've been in theaters where people laugh their asses off for the first 20 minutes, you know, when they see Jason doing his things and in his performance. So, you know, it, the movie has humor, it has tragedy, it has sex, it has violence, it has, you know, uh, melodrama has all of it for you. And so that's why I, I like to go to the movies because I like to feel a lot, <laughs> you know, I'm an emotional person. So when I go to a film, I, I sit down in a dark room or on my couch and I just, you know, I surrender myself to the movie. And I think if you come to American Murder, I think you'll have a, you might have a really good time. Absolutely. Has working on this changed anything about how you think about true crime or crimes or anything like that? Man, you're good, dude. I, I haven't gotten any of your questions before. I'm normally, I'm not gonna lie, I'm on a bit of a script, but you you really, uh, <laughs> you have smart ones. Yeah. Um, does it change how I look at true crime? You know, I mean, I'm still in the genre, so I like it. And I gotta tell you, one thing I love about true crime is, as a writer, because I know a lot of writers get writer's block. But the fact is, if you write true crime, you don't, you really, you have no excuse. <laughs> Because there's always something to write about. You know, I just wrote a script about, um, I'm writing a script right now about a bank robber um, who was a stockbroker but became a bank robber in Long Island. You know, it was just like, you know, writing is always at that time when it starts to get hard and it's like you're 50 pages in, you're like, I don't know if I can keep going. But I was like, well, I know he robs another bank, so I'll just write another bank robber. What I love about the genre is that, you know, A, there's endless stories to tell. You know, it's always, there's always some kind of drama and conflict there. And uh, I think there's all kinds of great opportunities to tell cool stories that haven't been told yet. Because just when I think I've like found the max, I'm like, oh my God, yeah, I found, I have like four or five right now. I'm like, I hear of three more. Like I just heard of one yesterday on American Greed, but there's like a sound, a guy who was posing as like a sound, an Oscar winning sound engineer in Hollywood and using that to rip people up. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. I'd see that movie, you know, or I see another one with like a sting operation. I'm like some guy in, girlfriend who wanted to kill his ex-wife I'm like that would be great you know and like these undercover cops are like working them i mean there's just so much out there to see and i don't know that i'll only do true crime that's not my plan i i, I hope to do a variety of movies but i really love the genre um because i think ultimately it's about you ask what draws us to it i think it's character because i think that's anytime you hear a good true crime story whether it's a con artist a murderer or a serial you know whatever it is i think ultimately what draws you there is the people you know like in this case, I think in American Murderer, Jason Derrick Brown is just fascinating. I think in the case of Dahmer and why so many people watch it is that Donner, Dahmer's repugnant and scary, but he 
he's not uninteresting. You know, he, he, he is, you know, and by the way, why did we love the Sopranos or Breaking Bad? You know, the two best TV shows of all time, arguably like, yeah, you, you probably don't want to root for these guys. You probably shouldn't root for these guys, but you may find yourself even though you shouldn't. And that's kind of the fun and the appeal of, of that kind of genre and that kind of storytelling. So yeah, no, I'm not sure how much it's changed my perception of true crime. Um, I'm grateful to how popular the genre is, you know, and that so many people out there I'm learning from going on your, on your podcast and other true crime podcasts. Um, you know, how many people are interested. I kind of thought it was just me, <laughs> you know, and like a few other people, but it's really interesting to see how many people love these kinds of stories. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of us out there. And uh, I'm, I'm curious in terms of, uh, you kind of gave us a few hints already, but I'll ask, you know, any other hints about future projects around true crime or other yeah. people looking into? I could tell you, yeah, no, I'm right now working on my second film. It's called the socialite. Um, and it's a it's based on a book, a true crime book, actually, um, by an author named Carrie Drobin, who you should totally have on your podcast someday. I I can see you two gelling. Um, she's written a lot of true crime books about like actually outlaw biker gangs, all kinds of things. But this story was particularly fascinating. It's a Aspen socialite who orchestrated her ex husband's murder in nineteen ninety six, but he was blown up by a car bomb. Um, so the movie is about her and her psyche and and her character and another kind of dark side of the American dream tale. Um, I'm really excited about that one. Um, I have another one about a kidnapping in Texas that I'm really excited about. I have another one, uh, this bank robber one I told you about. Um, and there's also another good bank robbing one uh, set in Seattle in the nineties that I really enjoyed, that I'm still very much in the weeds on, but yeah, I'm getting kind of all these scripts into shape as, you know, movie two, three, four, and five. So well, we're looking forward to talking about those. Hopefully you can come back in and chat about those. Someday. Oh, absolutely. You, you've got me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, if you, if you want to be on part of my press tour, you're welcome anytime. There you go. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for this. Um, where can people watch American murder? Um, yes. So American murder, you can see it now. It'll be on streaming on digital and demand. It also might be in a theater near you if you want to come see it on the big screen, but in terms of streaming digital and demand, you can see it on, uh, the iTunes store, uh, Amazon, Apple TV, really anywhere you can rent a movie, cable, um, direct TV, all those platforms. So anywhere you can rent a film, uh, you can rent it. And, uh, if you like it, please, uh, rate it and, uh, rate it on IMDb, Letterbox, Toronto Tomatoes, wherever you rate movies. And please tell people to come see it. Cause you know, uh, we have a really great cast, but we are an indie film. Uh, this is a labor of love for a lot of people. And so if we want to keep seeing more true crime, movies like this please come out watch the movie rank it tell your friends tell everyone tell all your true crime buddies to check it out because it helps a movie like this you know get awareness um you know so thank you and thank you so much for having me on oh and also if you want to follow me on anything um you follow me on instagram at matthew l gentile um or you go on my website matthewgentiledirector.com i update it pretty frequently and um I, uh, you can write me there if you want to write me a note what you thought about the movie. Awesome. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for this great conversation. We really appreciated having you on and yeah, really appreciate your insights on all of this. Is there anything I didn't ask you about? This is my razzle dazzle question. Anything I didn't ask you about that you, uh, wanted to mention or, you know, discuss? No, no, this was a really great conversation. I think you asked amazing questions. Um, uh, so good on you, uh, for, 
doing such good research. And yeah, no, that's a, you're a very good interviewer. Um, Aw, thank you. I, I tried. Um, no, I, this was a great interview. One of my favorites. So oh, thank you for having me on. Thank you so much to Matthew for an insightful conversation. We really appreciated it. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.